Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding. We are the number one value investing podcast in the world. Sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. If you're listening to us on the podcast side of thing, the chief comfort officer is going under the <laughs> camera. It's stressing me out. We got an expensive camera. He better not knock it down. If you want to support us, hit that subscribe button. Uh, the podcast side of things, love the uh, support that we are um, getting from everybody else. If you want to get probably the best place that we push out everything focused compounding is my Twitter at focused compound. And this is um, a public announcement. We've said it in pretty much every single podcast. And we are going to say on July 1st, um, the most recent 20 podcasts will only be available for free. The backlog will be behind a premium um, subscription, which is going to be $8 uh, per month. So if you want to- And we'll give you other stuff. That's correct. And there's going to be other stuff. People think that it's, you know, that it's just to get access to There's going to be other perks. Yeah. Yeah. There'll be other perks. Yeah. So um, be on the lookout for that. And if you want to save all of our podcasts before doing that, the backlog, make sure you download all of them uh, before we do that, July 1st. So we have about a month of telling you guys this. So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about story stocks and the Main Street story versus the Wall Street story. Mm -hmm. And this whole idea of like the variant perception. And how a lot of times you can make a lot of money in stocks when, you know, your view is different from this, quote, variant perception. And, um, you know, we've talked about a long time how sometimes, you know, reality and what Wall Street thinks um, could be completely different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's a great topic, especially in the space that we tend to fish in okay. for investing. There tends to be a lot more inefficiencies. I would say, quite honestly, this, the stocks are much more story stocks. Okay. Understanding the key people involved, understanding you know the business, mm-hmm. um, much more on a personal level than just like a financial statement level. Okay. Um, so how do you try to differentiate between like the Wall Street story mm-hmm. and the Main Street story? Yeah, so um, I guess what we're talking about here is... Uh, when you see these things from far away, it often you can say, oh, that's weird that Wall Street had that view. But while you're caught up in it, in especially when you're talking on Twitter, you're consuming the financial news that there is and whatever, it seems very natural that, um, the, that things are priced the way they are. So as an example, from like the 1950s, um, there was a point where... Uh, so there's a point where chemical stocks were valued about twice the S&P 500 uh, or twice the Dow and stuff like that, uh, whereas you had on electronic stocks about half, meaning they're the multiples. So multiples on chemical stocks are about four times the level on electronic stocks. Now, the future for chemicals and electronics are both pretty good, actually, for the 50s and 60s and stuff. But that, to us, looking from afar, seems really weird that everyone was betting on this huge boom in chemicals after... Uh, after um, World War II and wasn't very positive in electronics. And then we know that all this stuff happened with electronics that was very positive in the very long run. So to us, that seems like weird, right? We can see, well, that's a really aggressive way of pricing the two differently. Mm -hmm. But now we often don't notice the things that are like that. So I can say things about like, um, when I mentioned things like the supermarket and J&J snack foods and stuff like that from the late 1990s to the very early 2000s, why was the market pricing some food-related stuff at really low levels because it was really excited about technology and stuff. Like, all the money was going to technology and everything. Sure. So the same thing now where it could be 
software as a service, or it could be whatever, you know, that there's this belief that it grows and, and all those sorts of things. And that is going to be true for some companies in it. And you're going to check it out and the Main Street story and the Wall Street story are going to match up. But I was telling you that I was looking at a bunch of very small software companies. Mm-hmm. And the truth is that while they have high price to sales ratios, right, um, their results in terms of growing the top line per share, now sometimes they're diluting and stuff, is worse than many of the companies that we invest in. So for as an example, their EV to sales is much higher than like a OTC markets, right? Or we owned another stock before, don't now, computer services, core processing. So stuff like that actually has grown more than these software companies have. It has kind of similar economics and isn't very popular. Uh, I mean, it's popular enough, but it's not popular at the absurd levels that they are where they're not making money on it. So why is that? I mean, one of them could be the next... Um, whatever big uh is that what they're betting on the story it could right but then what is the story and this is where we're talking about phil fisher and about uh peter lynch both but they can't all be that way like when they go and do the scuttlebutt on them so when investors go and do the scuttlebutt of figuring these companies out and stuff they should feel that some of them actually don't have that promising a future um of being the next whatever there's nothing in their organization that makes them that impressive you know Mm -hmm. um there's things in the dna of amazon from an early stage that made that interesting as an organization now that it would work out that way or not i don't know but that you could go learn about it and feel that um, there was something there to the mainstream story. I mean, the main the mainstream story for Amazon has always been very positive. The stock has done all sorts of strange things, mm-hmm. um, from being very cheap to being very expensive to being in between. But actually, throughout the history of the company, it's been pretty consistently a, a growth thing in terms of the mainstream story. Sure, right. Um, so it's checking in on those things and trying to figure out if that's true. Uh, and that could be, you know, some, and sometimes it goes in ways that are surprising the other way. Chipotle has been a bit surprising the last few years that way, where the Wall Street story was much more positive. I think the hope for a rebound and all those sorts of things. Um, whereas like the main street sort of thing is that on a per unit basis, it hasn't gotten back to where it was before because they had some health things. Stocks back to an all time high. Right. But I think that from like a a perspective that's shown in the financial statements and health things is in, in the, um, concerns that people had after the health stuff, it didn't bounce back to the level it was before on a per unit basis sure. sort of mm-hmm. thing, definitely. So you can look into that and figure that out. Um, and we've talked about other food concepts and stuff. Like you asked me about a food place that you like, um, Potbelly and stuff like that, and there's a few other ones around here um, that are similar and that they went public and stuff like that. But if you checked into the story about how successful they were in terms of the economics of it and stuff, I don't think that they have been that successful versus the the stock market sort of situation where they were able to go public with all of that. So, you know, it, it's something that you could look into and see. You can. It's very easy to tell the difference between them on sort of that kind of basis, you know, whether something is increasing in popularity or not. Um, Phil Fisher's thing, though, was looking at it from like a technical perspective, trying to figure out which organizations were the best. So what does that mean? Well, just who was technologically leaders and things and mm-hmm. stuff like that. That may not always translate into great stuff in terms of stock market returns because it depends on what areas they're in. But if he has a strong belief in the R&D of a certain company or, or something like that, then he'll bet on them. Whereas Peter Lynch's big thing, really, he just wanted to find the places where things were getting better. He wanted to find that moment in time. It could be that a industry was in terrible shape and now it's getting better, or it's you know whatever it might be. He wanted to be around in the stocks of the companies when their industry was getting better. How much of Phil Fisher's investments 
was, you know, based on the industry and the industry growing and being a fast grower. So he did sometimes pick ones that were based on that. He definitely wanted to be involved in the electronics industry. Um, and so he made it a point to try to find the companies that he believed would be best that way. Um, I think he did that one time. And I know for a fact, because he talks about it in the book, that he wanted to be involved after World War II in a chemical business. So he had decided while in World War II, he, he wasn't in, in uh, any combat or anything, um, that once the war was over, he was going to find the best chemical company he could find, and he found Dow Chemical, um, because he wanted to take part in that, and he had real belief that that would be successful. So it is someone picking those industries, mm-hmm. him for the long term. Um, Peter Lynch, on the other hand, was the one of picking the the turning point in the industry, right? So sure. Would, yeah. and, but they were both similar in that they would ask like everybody in that industry. Peter Lynch would even sometimes buy like most of the people in that industry, most of the stocks in the industry. But it would be like if um, there was a problem with banks in Texas or California or New England or whatever, he would try to figure out at what point things are getting better and then buy into them. And the way of doing that is talking to like 10 of them, not talking to one of them. He made an incredible number of company visits. I was just going to say that. Uh, I think like practically his whole career, he was always on the road a lot, right? Yeah. And that's interesting sometimes from the perspective of like... In his portfolio, he owned a ton of different stocks. Yes, yes. And sometimes we concentrate by buying a bunch of different stocks in the same industry. So he'd buy like several car makers at once or something like that because of this belief that he was getting in a good point for things to turn around and get better. So he wouldn't just buy things because they're cheap, but he would buy things when they were getting better mm-hmm. um, I, and you can sometimes get that from talking to people in the industry and stuff like that um, a feel for whether they think things are getting better and whether they t- whether their concerns are the same sorts of concerns that Wall Street has um, sometimes the disconnect seems pretty big to me and I'm not sure what it's about the one that I've talked about before that's always kind of baffled me is for about 20 years people have been talking about online grocery stuff and for about 20 years, it hasn't mattered. <laughs> yeah, sure. It doesn't matter what thing the big online company buys up and what they try to do with it and yeah. whatever. It doesn't matter what the little companies in it try to do. It doesn't matter if there's a virus that keeps allegedly keeps people at home and stuff, but then you go to the supermarkets and it's full of people wearing masks and stuff so they can keep shopping there. It has had very little effect as a thing that they can do, and yet it's something that people believe in a big way that doesn't make a ton of sense from the economics. I'm not saying it will never happen, but the fact it hasn't happened for 20 years means if you're wrong for 20 years, that's, you know, that's not being 20 it's years like early. It's a societal thing. <laughs> it's, it's not right for being 20 years early. But it's been a thing that Wall Street has talked about and whatever. Wall Street does tend to talk a little bit more about the things that change than about the things that stay the same. Um, probably to is the that because ratio. that's where the money is? I don't think that is where the money is. <laughs> I think that's where the money is usually lost or not successful. Well, I'm saying like deals and sales and stuff like that. Oh, um... I think it's boredom. I think that you can't keep talking about the same thing, so you have to make up stuff to talk about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, what can you do with a supermarket? No one can write a report on a supermarket company without spending huge amounts of time, and this has been true for a long time, talking about online stuff. Is it a threat? And even if that's very speculative, still doing that. And that, that's true for lots of other companies. I mean, companies for car things, talking about electric vehicles and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could happen eventually in a very big way, and it could matter a lot. But you do want to be careful about devoting too much time to that sort of thing. And we need to keep those things in perspective. You can keep those things in perspective by talking to people and them saying, you know, 99 out of a hundred of our customers don't care about this thing that you care a lot about talking to me about. That probably is a hint that it doesn't matter and stuff. Now they may one day change over and stuff, but it is also interesting because I, I'll give you an example from book things. So I talked to some people in the book industry for years before Kindle came out. Like book publishing. Yeah. Yeah. And they were convinced as was I and stuff that, 
eventually this electronic thing is going to be huge and stuff. And, um, and we were all wrong for a very long time mm -hmm. because they didn't come out with the right product for it or whatever, you know, like the right way to, to read it. And it wasn't from a company that had the sort of distribution and whatever the, the thing that could get that much news about the launch and everything, but a big belief that that would turn into just because of the way the industry works and stuff. So for one thing, very, all, uh, a small number of people in the country read a large number of books. So for the very loyal book readers and stuff, it actually isn't very costly and it's very convenient to buy a, a Kindle or an ebook or something. Whereas it is true that for half of America, it makes absolutely no sense, but mm -hmm. half of America basically reads one book or less a year, pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, they give gifts of books, they buy books, and so I don't even know if they read them. So half of the people basically are your whole market there. And for those people who are religiously reading romance novels and mystery things and stuff, which is a huge amount of the consumption in the United States of books, you know, it made a lot of sense. But if I had bet on that in a sense I would have been too early for a long time because it's something that people believed in and that didn't show up for a really long time well it's the same way with like auto parts in AutoZone O'Reilly mm -hmm. the story's always been well is Amazon gonna um, you know sort of disrupt this business it's always Amazon and I feel like a lot of times when we yeah. come across companies it's always Amazon yeah right but I'm saying like when I wonder if it, people will know more about Amazon than they know about the business that we're looking at and that's the problem yeah, I don't know but I was gonna say like a lot of times when you're coming across a company in our universe, the way that we think about value and multiples and stuff like that, mm -hmm. it seems like there's always sort of the Wall Street version and the Main Street version. A lot of people say it's trading cheap because of this disruption or this right. story or something like that. So it really comes down to how do you like distinguish between sort of the varying perception being wrong? Because if it's trading cheap, a lot of times it could be for a reason mm -hmm. by other, you know, or people's perception of the stock. Like if you're, for example, if yeah. AutoZone is trading at eight times earnings or nine times earnings, a mm -hmm. lot of people are probably like, oh, this business is going to get disrupted. Right. So but, they rerate the multiple. But you could, the stock. Right. But you could ask questions of yourself and others there and do scuttlebutt to try to figure out if they've looked for auto parts on Amazon. Sure. Yeah, I get that. I'm just saying like, what do you, what are some Have things Have you ever do? looked for auto parts on Amazon? I'm not an auto guy, so no. Have you ever gone to an AutoZone or something like that? Yeah, Something's gone wrong with your car, so yeah. You so I to... go to AutoZone and I go to the cash register. And I said, "Hey, can you help me find this?" And they go and right. find it. Yeah. I mean, you and even then, if you looked on Amazon, you could just get a picture of it or whatever on your phone to show the guy, and he would buy it. For, he would get be, it from you there. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's the whole thing with why AutoZone and O'Reilly haven't been disrupted is because when people have car issues, they want it done. No, they don't want to wait a couple of days for it. Even right, if they they're want, same day delivery. Sure, they want it done now. You don't know what's actually wrong with your car. Yeah. Um, you have no idea what the part costs. They could charge you anything. They could tell you, yeah, it's a $3 part. No, it's a $300 part. You would have no idea which it is. And your only way of knowing would be something like Amazon or something. But also Amazon would be slower. So I don't know. In AutoZone, for example, I like it, the only time I really ever go to AutoZone is if I have like a headlight out. Okay. And I always ask them like, hey, can you put it in for me? And they're like, yeah, I'll go do it. I'm like, all right, thanks. <laughs> yeah. So that's one I don't know about and stuff. Um, but on the other hand, look, you order a lot of um, uh, food, right? Mm -hmm. You do delivery of food. Now, let me just say this. I'm lazy. So people know this during coronavirus and stuff. This is an aspect of our industry and stuff that Walsh is very excited about and stuff. Yeah, home delivery. There you go. And it makes no economic sense. Nope. There was actually somebody <laughs> that like did like an arbitrage where it was costing the restaurant like a ton of money. Did yeah. you hear about this story? 
No, I don't. It know was this, but something I, about it, it was costing the restaurant way. Yeah. It's not good for anyone. You're paying more for your food than you need to be making. The only way that the delivery service works is basically through venture capital, and the restaurants on average are going to make less money by doing this. Exactly. Yeah. It's just simply less efficient. I mean, there's a reason why drive-throughs work so much better. I mean, they're so efficient versus the possibility of of, of um, delivering to people. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't continue to get delivery, although you'd have to do it at much higher prices for it to make sense for them economically. And there are some things where I believe it could happen. So like the Wall Street versus Main Street thing, a good question. Uh, here's the one that was a big investigation that Quan and I did in the Singular Diligence stuff is we wondered a lot about pet food. Pet mm. food is a very, very hard one to solve. On the one hand, delivery of pet food is insane financially. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work for anyone. It has a very low uh, value to uh, weight ratio, so it's a very heavy thing that you have to deliver. And it costs a lot to deliver it. You also have to store it someplace. So like some of the companies that were doing this early on that weren't PetSmart and stuff, um, PetSmart bought the uh, big online thing in this space. But before that, yeah, yeah. But before that, um, they were paying places that are basically like Amazon and stuff to stock it for them. So they're paying a price for that they don't actually have it physically. So it's at a warehouse that they pay to have that in the warehouse. They pay to have it fulfilled at that warehouse for them. Then they pay UPS or whatever to deliver it. This is very high versus the price of the item. But on the other hand, people really liked it. And it's not that expensive from their perspective to have it immediately be a reorder. So there's some case for it as making sense. And there's a case for companies like Amazon, even if they don't make any money off of it, to do it mm -hmm. because then maybe you keep a customer that you otherwise wouldn't and stuff like that. So people do like reorders of things, whether it's reorders of your contact lenses, reorders of your prescription drugs, reorders of whatever, same sort of thing for your dog food. And that was a big reason why people go to certain pet stores. They're not really buying that much else other than just the dog food, right? But economically, it doesn't make a great deal of sense. I mean, that's the story with Zooplus. That people, mm -hmm. if, if you ever read a Zooplus report, yeah. there's always a mention of, well, why won't Amazon do this themselves? Which is a which it does in the U.S. and I assume it does some of that in in Europe as well. Um, I don't know the, the thing for Zooplus is they have to make some money off of, but you have to have reorders and you have to have some sales of other things with it. The stuff that's worked online is, I mean, we could, I mean, contacts worked online, pet prescription stuff worked online, diamonds worked online. Those are some pretty high value to weight. Uh, sure. things. So yeah. the things that are the opposite, I don't know about that. Um, but yeah, but it's a thing that made no sense when you talk to people in the industry, like how does this make any sense? And sometimes it's odd, the things that they say, but you have to understand that confusion of why people behave that way. I mean, you know it costs more to order it that way, but you do order it that way. Um, the, there is a delivery company around, even though they can't make any money, mm -hmm. because venture capital backed them or because um, public investors backed them. Um, so, and the restaurant is willing to take an order that they wouldn't make as much as if you were in person, but it is still something that they would make. So people keep doing it. So will it last forever or not? I don't know. I, I've said that before, even about things like, you know, that confused me about WeWork um, and that confused me about like Uber and stuff like that. 
um, I don't know. As long as you keep having capital provided, maybe it can keep working. But you have losses. It's hard to find the business model in there where you make money off of it. The pet food thing makes a little bit more sense, but it is very inefficient. And it's very inefficient to have groceries delivered to you. That's I mean, what, the groceries delivered to you is like amazingly bad because also you don't have as good selection that you would have in person. There, there's all sorts of things about the efficiencies of it that are much, much worse. That's what I was talking about. Like, what about these companies that they need the story? Like, they need the capital markets to survive. So you could look at like a Chesapeake right. Energy, for example. Mm-hmm. And what do they do? They raise capital, they go buy land, they raise more cap debt or, right. or whatever, or maybe they'll dilute, mm-hmm. they go buy more. It's like they need access to the capital markets to survive. Right. And that is an interesting problem. But there's never been as much but why is that access their, for as long. Why is that their business model? Because it's like you're on this treadmill. Right. And is it, okay, I'm going to come in as CEO, I'm going to do this for five years, I'm going to just build this market cap and then sell out myself and, and, you know, sort of kick the can to the next person. I mean, how, what's the business model there? What's the end game? I don't know. I mean, I think people in those industries generally do have some belief in what they're selling. That's generally true. So if they're big on, say they're big on natural gas or whatever, they are optimistic about the price of natural gas. Um, that's not unusual, but then they know their incentives and that works unconsciously on them and stuff probably. But, um, I think it's interesting because the market used to not have stocks like this. There have never been so many stocks that for so long didn't make money. And some of them went on to be successful, although not usually taking as long as some of these others have taken. But so it became a thing that you could get to this huge size and stuff. And so what if you could be the next Amazon or something, you know, Mm -hmm. there's belief that maybe you make money later on. And it could have things to do with interest rates and stuff that people are basically discounting things into the future that way. But I think it's mainly looking at a couple companies that had really good results after having losses early on, though they made money earlier generally and on a gross profit basis a lot earlier. Um, like before R&D and stuff, let's use that as an example, CapEx, R&D, things like that. You know, Amazon was cash generative a lot earlier in its history than these companies that we're seeing now in some cases. When I compare it to something like... Like um, on a free cash flow like basis. Car, uh, ride, yeah. So when we talk about things like Uber and Lyft and stuff, um, that's basically... You know, well, that's why whenever I talk about Uber, I call it the ten-year startup that still isn't profitable. Yeah, and the thing that I've always wondered about it though is that to me, um, it doesn't make as much sense economically. But it is interesting because it has huge consumer appeal. Mm-hmm, sure, but that's like the food delivery thing. I mean, of course, consumers like that. Although they still have to price it pretty high for consumers. Um, but yeah, I mean, but if it doesn't make money, will they stop doing it eventually? So that's the story thing of it. The story one that we talked a little bit about that always baffled me was WeWork. Be, you know, WeWork, and I'll also say this other one, Tesla. Uh, WeWork and Tesla are... Hey, MoviePass. Okay, MoviePass. That was early on. Well, MoviePass started, made, yeah. yeah, MoviePass made no sense as a business model, but... You liked it, though. <laughs> you're like, I, I love use MoviePass. Yeah, you're like, as a customer, oh, I love this, so I, I just can't understand how this is sustainable. Yeah, people don't know this on the podcast, but before the virus... Uh, on average, I went to more than one movie a week mm-hmm. in a given year in theaters. I, I'm not big on TV, and I'm not that big on watching movies and things in the home, but I do watch, compared to most Americans, a lot of movies in theaters. And uh, I did like Movie Pass, but yeah. the business model made no sense, and the idea that they would ever do that, you know, that wouldn't make sense. But WeWork and Tesla are the ones that are fascinating to me because they're the story thing that we're talking about in that it's hard to figure out. Now, Tesla, you could argue some things, but it's hard with either one of these, how these are fundamentally going to eventually end up in a mature state. 
as something very different than a business that already is publicly traded and not valued that high. So like, for instance, WeWork always had a publicly traded competitor um, that never had a very high PE Regis. and stuff. Yeah, it mm-hmm. never had a very high um, earnings uh, uh, situation, uh, multiple. And it wasn't all that popular and stuff. And some of these things had gotten up broke before in the past and stuff. But putting that aside, no matter what, it's basically a business model that exists already. And I'm, I'm not saying that I wouldn't use WeWork and stuff personally. I'm just saying as an investment, it, that's the thing that's odd about it, mm-hmm. that you're selling this as a totally different product. Tesla is also interesting that way because at the end of the day, there's now a lot of Teslas around here and stuff. Um, how is it different than other car companies in terms of the economics? How is it radically different? And that becomes an issue for both of these companies on things like returns on invested capital and stuff. Amazon is fundamentally a hugely different business than offline retail. Its returns on capital are different, all sorts of things. It's hard to see how the business model of those companies, Tesla and WeWork, um, are fundamentally very different from these other companies that are already in the space. Now, they could with money from investors and stuff, grow to be the most popular and the most whatever. Mm-hmm. But then is a car maker that's huge worth a lot more than other car makers that aren't or whatever, or if the profit is a lot higher and stuff. And even then we have, I can go back and find my Moody's and stuff and see what GM looked like and what it earned and stuff. I, it's never gonna have the market share that GM had. Will it have the margins and things that it had? You know, So you can look and kind of very easily cap what the possibilities are for companies like that because they're basically a story about the future that already is very similar to a business model that exists now Mm -hmm. you know so that's the part that's a little confusing with those whereas something like online pet food or delivery things or whatever it is a different totally different business model like i it's hard to know what uber and lyft so you can see how those could be more story stocks is what you're saying I can see how people could imagine because a the end game, the, the maturity that's unlimited. Can, yeah, yeah. It has always. I, I've always wondered how people see sort of an unlimited future for WeWork or Tesla because it just seems there's good comparables for them, which seems like the odd part of it. Mm-hmm. So, like, there was a huge boom in the middle of the last century in franchising stocks. Anything that franchised was huge, mm-hmm. and there's very good reason for why that is. The companies that were most successful and stuff and went on for the next 50 more years, franchising stuff became incredible return on invested capital stuff, you know? So like a Domino's Pizza is a company that franchises other things, uh, and you own stock in that, and that's been amazingly successful the last 15 years or something. But anything that would franchise would become insanely valuable back then because they could see the the advantages of that. So I can see when it's something a new concept that really wasn't franchising as a concept before then and the high possible return on invested capital. But like I it's harder to see like the things I said with like WeWork and Tesla because fundamentally it seems to me they operate in terms of capital and stuff very similarly to companies that already exist and aren't valued all that highly in their markets. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of comparing that like asking well how do they have mu- how will they have much higher returns and stuff than just this is the future of whatever yeah. which may be true. Tesla may be the future of driving and well, WeWork the future is, right? of yeah. of um co-working and stuff but they may not be very like exceptionally profitable compared to ones that already exist. And the difference of why Fang stocks are so successful is Ben Graham defined a successful company and stuff as not a big one, but as one that earns, has a high earning power on much higher earning power value than its book value. And Buffett said that. So why is Apple so successful and stuff as a stock, Microsoft as a stock? Well, they're so successful because they earn very high returns versus their book value. They don't need any book value and stuff. Mm -hmm. But if that's not true, 
and your economics are similar to things that already exist today, that's something that you could probably verify Main Street stuff, you know? Like, you can verify things about how likely it is that their um, business model is actually different. Sure. And that's the key thing, is whether the business model is different. And like I said in a previous podcast, it can't be just the demand thing. To know that demand will go up 10x does not matter if supply will also go up 10x or if your business model just requires you to increase your capital by 10 times. Mm -hmm. If you're earning 10% return on capital now and you get 100 times bigger but you need 100 times more capital, you're not going to outperform the market. Unless the, it's a story stock and it just continues, and it to, continues to be a hundred times from now, yeah. maybe yeah. if it continues <laughs> until that runs out. Yeah, I mean, if people keep saying that, that's true. Yeah, crazy, 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 crazy. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself on the number one value investing podcast in the world. If you like the work we're putting out and you like our backlog of over two years of 200 plus episodes make sure you save it because on July 1st um, only the most recent 20 will be available if, if this backlog is particularly dear to you, you some people do a lot, of, a lot of people like to go back and listen to it I, I don't because <laughs> I hate my voice yeah I'll have to talk about that I think there's a thing well we'll get into that I think there's a thing where uh, people are likely to be given the first episode like right away Oh, well. It's suggested to them. Yeah, Interesting. Well, 50% of podcast downloads, fun fact, come from backlogs. Yeah, so that won't be true for us anymore. Yeah, yeah, that is true. <laughs> but you will be getting the, the 20 most recent ones will always be up there free. So if you subscribe and stuff, it's going to be normal for most people. We're just mentioning this for anyone who likes to like go back to things from years ago. Yeah, yeah. Which is a small part of the audience. Yep. So I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself. Hit those subscribe buttons. Thank you so much for the support. We will see you in the next podcast. Take care.